0: Uh, We missed you yesterday on the phone because we were up in Zion and out of cell phone range or range to broadcast from. (coughs) Uh, It was so nice to be up in that grandeur of of Yellowstone, of Zion. (laughs) Yellowstone's beautiful too, Uh, but... uh, the rich meaning that Zion has from the Bible and from God's perspective in the future is, is uh, part of the magnificence of it. I did drive up to the gate to uh, Tanner before services and just standing there toward the base of the great white throne of the West Temple, whichever you call it, uh, that enormous rock is incredible, uh, just standing up above. And, of course, it reminds us of Christ, our rock, and how overpowering and incredible He is in terms of the universe and the world and our lives. So, it's always good to get up there and be inspired by the beauty of what God has made. <clears throat> what you missed uh, yesterday, it, essentially, I didn't continue with the series on the patriarchs, but we got on to other things and... Uh, It seemed to keep getting back to where we are right now in terms of the world situation and the church and uh, events that have to occur uh, and possibly the order in which that happens uh, if this is the year things start to occur, and it very well may be based on the way we see the economy of the world and, and the military preparations that are going on, as well as our own political morass, or swamp, or whatever you want to call it, uh, that could lead to violence, civil war, revolution, and uh, martial law, and the UN takeover. So God gives us direction uh, in what we are to be doing and thinking and preparing for in the meantime, and how the church will be involved, and how it can escape. So we went over a lot of scriptures and uh, Thoughts along those lines. I think most of it was probably recorded. I don't know how how well it picked it up, but probably pretty well. The recorder was sitting close to me, so Nelson can check and see if some of you are interested in that, which I know some will be. Uh, Nelson says this marks a halfway point. No, we're today marks a three quarter point. <laughs> We uh the piece is eight days long, so two days is a quarter. And this is the sixth day, so to the end of today is three quarters done. We have tomorrow and the Sabbath and that's it. It's uh, going by even faster than he thought. Uh it doesn't take long to go through eight days. Uh we have a barbe- barbecue scheduled again. Late this afternoon, <coughs> such as we had Tuesday evening, which was excellent, I don't think you could have gone to town and bought a steak any better than those we had, and the side dishes as well. It was just it was superb. Uh, we have something to shoot for tonight, I guess to make it as good as that was, and probably will do so anyway. We're again going to plan on starting the cooking around four thirty and and eat about 5:30, and the same applies as last time bring a side dish or dessert or something like that to complement the meat which is being provided so we look forward to that we've been some of us sitting around the campfire some about every evening and last night was spectacular i thought around the campfire i, I built a fire just before dark And uh, no one ever showed up for about two, two and a half hours, so I was able to sit there and contemplate the stars and the moon and the fire, and uh, have some good thinking time without making conversation or having anyone around, so there. Uh, (laughs) uh, It would have been nice to have had more people, but it doesn't matter, you were obviously doing other things, and that's fine, because I I thoroughly enjoy just being there and having a chance to reflect in the firelight. I'll bet there'll be more people around tonight since we're having a barbecue. And that's fine, too. It's All right, uh, let's go to Genesis again. We closed on a very high note yesterday. Uh, in talking about Noah and how he had been righteous and how faithful and perseverant and patient and uh, the character he showed in accomplishing the goals and the purposes, uh, the mission or the work that God had set before him. And uh, he accomplished it in good order and got the job done. So God made a covenant with him as we read Uh, for the future, a good covenant, having to do with God's laws and His ways. Uh, So, the offerings that Noah gave when they came off the ark were sweet savor to God's nose, uh, that there were people on the earth now who were willing to obey Him, whereas beforehand there had been probably billions of people on the earth by then who would not obey Him. So the stench of disobedience and violence and murder had ceased. And the only thing coming up to God at that point was the sweet savor of righteous offerings. That must have been a, quite a change for God. and No wonder it moved his heart. That he didn't have to put up with the garbage, and here was something sweet and pleasant to him for a change. <coughs> And then we get to chapter 9. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Uh, So after having destroyed mankind except for eight, God said, "Uh, we're going to do this all over again. Uh, If you go on through the Bible, you'll find out the results were about the same for the second round. Uh, Wasn't much different. Uh, Mankind degenerated very, very quickly to the days of Nimrod and building, a building against God, trying to take over the heavens, so uh, it didn't take long. And the story of Israel, once you get away from a few patriarchs, was pretty miserable as well. And uh, then Christ came, and there was a significant upgrade when the Holy Spirit came to help people. And the new covenant began to be. And I think that God by far will collect more people from the early New Testament church and here at the end for the 144,000 bride of Christ than he did from Adam until the time that Christ came. Because the upgrade of the new covenant gave better promises and it gave more help through the Holy Spirit to comfort, strengthen, and empower us. So, it's a slow upgrade. But you know what the constant problem is? The same. Satan has always been around since Adam and Eve. And that did not change with the Noachian deluge. Uh, Satan didn't drown in the flood. (laughs) He was still very much around afterward. And he was still very much around after the New Testament church started. And he's very much here today. And I mean right here. Uh, hopefully, the Father and the Son by Spirit are here in this room, but Satan is after God's people. and you know when in their revelation twelve, when he's cast down not to be our accuser before God's throne anymore soon, uh, the first thing he's going to do is immediately send an army after the church, which will will be fleeing. Uh, when the temple is defiled in the new Jerusalem that will be built or the old restored. So Satan wants us destroyed. We should always keep that in mind, that we have a spiritual battle going on. Well, we may see that a little bit in terms of Noah's life here. Uh, God tells Noah that the fear of Mankind would be on the fowls and the fish and the beasts of the earth in the next few verses. And that they will be food for you and the green herb he's given us in verse 3. Uh, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. Uh, so you can't mix blood with the meat you eat. You're supposed to separate the meat and the blood. Bleed the animal out. Uh, there's a great deal of symbolism there, even with the animals, because uh, Christ's blood had to be shed for man's sin. The, the blood of a beast was not enough, really. <coughs> physical forgiveness, a physical sin, but when it comes to mankind's life, only the blood of Christ can cover our sins uh, so that we do not have to die. But he in this covenant, mentions that, the same as he did when Moses codified all this and wrote it all out later on. Uh, At the hand of every man's brother, while I require the life of man, whoso shed man's blood, verse 6, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God it made he man. So he hearkens back to Cain killing Abel and to the violence and murder that was going on in society prior to the flood. And he makes it very clear here that if there's murder, uh, then those who do the murdering are to be killed. Moses laid it all out and said you were to stone them to death. All Israel was to stone them. So for civil authorities to have the death penalty is certainly biblical, because to God... The killing of mankind built in the image of God by his brother or neighbor or or, uh, enemy is clearly a capital offense and not to be tolerated. And certainly no uh, follow-up or secondary uh, murder by the same person because you're executed if you murder, which is done. They had it right pretty much in the Old West give them a quick trial and string them up (laughs) with the whole town there to see it. And then you didn't steal anybody's horse or kill anybody because uh, the one who did it was dead and the ones who saw it were afraid. They say that capital punishment is no deterrent today. Well, no, it's not. It's not speedily done. Uh, it's not much of a deterrent. You'll be on death row for 10, 12, 15 years and then get pardoned or whatever. No, if you do it the way God said, it is a deterrent. And certainly no repeats. Then he told them to be fruitful and multiply, verse 7, and bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply. So God's willing, after his experience, still to cause a great number of people to exist on the earth. And later on with Abraham, he promised that his seed would be as the sand of the sea, and so on. Do you ever count, sit on the beach and try to count sand particles? Uh, (laughs) Plan to bring your lunch and stay all day. (coughs) Anyway, he said he established his covenant with Noah and with his seed after him. And with the creatures, and so on. And then, he said, there'll no more be a flood to destroy the earth, verse 11. And he said, a rainbow in the clouds to be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring a cloud over the earth, the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I'll remember my covenant with you and every living creature. Uh, It is just an absurd and sickening thing that perverts have now... Uh, taking the rainbow as a symbol of their perverted way of life, and their rainbow coalition and all that garbage. Uh, something that was a sacred covenant between Noah and man and God has been picked up by the filthiest, most despicable, perverted people on earth. It doesn't make God happy, I'll guarantee you that. I, you know, when I see a beautiful rainbow or a double rainbow, which we see occasionally here, they'll go from earth to earth, both of them. What an incredible and beautiful sight. And then to degrade it in such a fashion is just, oh, putrid. Anyway, that is a token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth, verse 17. says quite a little about it here. He, he embellishes and repeats it. <clears throat> so it is a very, very important sign. And God refers to it later on, we'll read about. Uh, refers all the way back to it in prophecies of the end time. Anyway, Noah's life had gone pretty well, and certainly he is an example that we can look to in a very, very positive way of the characteristics that he had toward God. Uh, But there, I think, is for us, uh, from 18 down, some encouragement as well, because as good an example as Noah set, uh, everything in his life was not perfection. So, while we can look at the good and try to emulate it, uh, we also can understand that if we have made mistakes or do make mistakes, there is room in God's mind and in His mercies to forgive and to help in spite of ourselves. So, there can be great encouragement, and maybe maybe that's some of the reason that God did record some of the mistakes and failings of the patriarchs, even though we're to look to them. Somebody might say, well, okay, we're to look to the patriarchs. What if one of them got drunk? I'll do that, too. Uh, But the circumstances around that weren't too good. Uh, We're to look to the godly attributes of the patriarchs and their their wives, uh, not to the mistakes that were made. Anyway, let's pick this up uh, and understand. Verse 18, the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. Now, why did it mention here that Ham of those three sons was was the son, uh, Canaan was the uh, son of Ham? Now, each of those three men had quite a few sons. But there's a context here that is important to a problem that occurred And Canaan is introduced as the son of Ham immediately. Uh, This passage that we're about to read has caused a great deal of consternation and argument and frustration trying to figure out what really happened here. But I think as we examine this, we'll see fairly clearly what did occur, and that Canaan was involved, otherwise he wouldn't have been mentioned at the very introduction of the situation. Then he reiterates, these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. So all mankind came from those three, including uh, the races, had to have been. Uh, yellow, brown, or yellow, black, and white. Brown comes from a mixture of the three. Anyway, those are the three sons that would uh, multiply and populate the earth. Verse 20, Noah began to be a an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. I guess he'd had enough of the boat-building business and uh, decided he would farm instead. So he planted a vineyard. Doesn't say how big, but it was big enough to make wine for sure. He drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. So we find many scriptures which indicate it's okay to drink alcohol, but we find quite a few would show that it is not okay to be drunks, that alcohol is to be used properly, and it's like anything else. If we can't control it, we better not use it. Uh, It's just the way that it is, because drinking too much alcohol can cause a lot of problems, and did here. Uh, So God condemns drunkenness, (coughs) and certainly the degree of drunkenness that occurred here. Uh, He drank of the wine, was drunk and uncovered within his tent. So he didn't have any clothes on, no bedclothes over him. He was laying there, probably stark naked. Uh, And Ham, the father of Canaan, mentions Canaan again here, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Now, If Ham had done whatever it is that was done here himself, do you think, if it was a shameful thing, he would have gone out and told his two brothers what he had just done? I don't think so. Usually you try to cover your tracks, don't you? You don't go out and you don't do something and go out and tell everybody, hey, I just did such and such a sin. No, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So something happened here. So he told his two brothers, and Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. So they were very discreet about it, but I think that it is obvious here in the context, and in a couple of scriptures we'll go to, But he did more than walk in and see his dad laying there naked. Uh, That is not entirely uh, an offense. But what might have done there certainly was a vast offense because the punishment was great. Uh, Noah awoke from his wine, sobered up, and knew what his younger son had done to him. He didn't just see, but something had been done to him. Now, was he drunk, uh, passed out, but was he alert enough, having been basically blacked out, that he lay there and began to remember something that had happened? Maybe he was conscious enough to realize something had occurred. (laughs) that something had been done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. Not Ham. Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. So Ham discovered what had happened. He didn't uh, do it himself. But it was apparently his son, Noah's grandson, who had done whatever it was that was done to Noah. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. Deuteronomy 27.20. And uh, a little bit about nakedness. Deuteronomy 27.20. Cursed be he that lies with his father's wife, because he uncovers his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen. So, uh, seeing or... Uh, Seeing the nakedness of, or uncovering the skirt, which is taking clothes off, was the King James way of interpretation, uh, which meant a sexual act had occurred. It wasn't just seeing them naked that was the sin, it's what they did. Uh, People don't get naked in order to get drunk. I think that would be a very, very rare occurrence. People get drunk in order to get naked. That's the way it goes most of the time. In other words, the drink removes inhibitions and conscience and all that so that it's easier to do what people are prone to do uh, by their very nature. Alcohol makes it easier to do those things. So, uh, when Noah began to drink... to drink. Uh, somewhere the clothes came off and something occurred. And that's what this is saying. Leviticus 20. uh, Leviticus 20. And here let's look at uh, 11, 13, and 17. 11, and the man that lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. That puts it very clearly. If he had sex with her, it's the same thing as uncovering the nakedness. Thirteen, if a man also lie with mankind, as he lies with a woman, a sexual relationship, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death. Uh, Seventeen, if a man shall take his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and see her nakedness, and she see his nakedness, it is a wicked thing and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He'll bear the iniquity. So when someone saw the nakedness, it meant a sexual relationship, not just seeing them without their clothes on. So when he saw the nakedness, Ham knew something had happened. And whether Canaan was still there or not, it does not say. But Ham realized something had happened, and they were covering it. Now, it might have been something that Canaan did to Noah himself, a homosexual act, or it's possible that Noah and his wife both drank wine and were both drunk, and Canaan may have uh, misused and abused Noah's wife. That's always a possibility. And uncover her nakedness, they were both naked. Uh, But it does say what his younger son, and a grandson is in that sense a son in the line, had done to him. And since it was Ham's son, he may have held Ham partially accountable for it uh, because there was something wrong with Ham's son. And uh, Ham then would have been held accountable for what his son had done to him. Anyway... Uh, I think the curse that is given shows that it was Canaan. Canaan is mentioned throughout, and Ham would not have told had he been the one who perpetrated the problem. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, verse 25, a servant of servants shall he be to his brother. Not cursed be Ham, but cursed be Canaan. Ham had several sons, and Canaan was the only one cursed. Ham's other sons were not cursed. So that shows that the responsibility fell on Canaan himself. The way it's worded, I can see where people get confused, but uh, follow the money, if you will. Follow the number of times Canaan is mentioned. Follow uh, the penalty that was put on him. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Not Ham, but Canaan. Now, if you go on to the account of uh, Abraham in chapter 12 and I think I will to show you this uh, verse 4 well 5 Abram, Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and they went to in Haran and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan and into the land of Canaan they came uh, Abram passed through the land of the place of Shechem uh, to the oak. And the Canaanite was then in the land. So the Canaanite had arrived there before Abram did. Now notice verse 7, And the Eternal appeared to Abram and said, Unto your seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar to the Eternal who appeared to him. So when it says back here in chapter 9 uh, that Canaan would be cursed and that Shem would be blessed and Canaan be his servant. Uh, Thereafter, where Canaan had settled, God sent Abram, a son of Shem, or in the line of Shem, and gave him the Canaanites' land. So there's a partial fulfillment right there of the curse on Canaan and the blessing on Shem. So it didn't come on the other sons of Canaan at all, I'm of uh, Ham at all, but on Canaan himself. And God will enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So the the problem came down completely on Canaan and those who would follow him in that particular family line. So when Joshua came to the promised land again, it was called the land of Canaan. And the Canaanites and Amorites and Hittites and others were there, but still in all, they had to le- enter into that land, and then it became Israel's land, not the Canaanites anymore. So here was a mistake that Noah made. To get so drunk, he couldn't control the situation, and something despicable was done to him, or to his wife, probably to him, by a grandson. And Ham discovered what had happened, and they covered Noah up, and then Noah came to his senses, and whether he was told, or whether in his drunken memory, he could recall what had occurred, he certainly cursed Canaan, not Ham. <coughs> so Noah did not cre- did not do the greatest sin here, but his impropriety and the mistake he made of getting that drunk led to the problem that occurred, and that affected. Thousands and thousands and ultimately millions of people. That one drunken uh, binge, I guess you'd say, that Noah went on. I don't know how often he drank or how much he drank, but in this particular occasion, he drank way too much. And it had an effect on his children and grandchildren to this day. There's another case like this where uh, Lot had escaped with his two daughters, the wife having been turned to a pillar of salt, and then they saw this huge fire and brimstone cloud over Sodom and Gomorrah, and the daughters apparently thought that all mankind had been destroyed except them and their father. So that might have worked out okay, except that Lot got drunk. He got, they, his daughters got him drunk, fed him the alcohol, till he got so drunk they could have a relationship with him and somehow become pregnant one one night and one the next night. So he woke up with a hangover and they started over on him. And uh, the incest that occurred there with Moab and Ammon uh, still affects the descendants of Moab and Ammon to this day. I do believe that Moabites and Ammonites are some of uh, a major portion of the Mormon community. Uh, There's more incest and polygamy and and, uh, abuse of daughters in that group than any place else on earth that I know of. Uh, Same sins have been visited all the way down this far. The same proclivity is still there. And... uh, The punishment of those people is outlined in Isaiah and I think it's speaking of Ammon there, or is it Moab? I think it's Ammon. Uh, It says that what they have stored up will be used for God's people. Well, God's people are coming to this area. And who are the ones who mainly inhabit it today? The Mormons. Uh, And the children of Ammon, the Mormons, have laid up or at least their, their doctrine is, for their families to lay up three years' supply of food. So when it mentions there in Isaiah 15 and 16 how they are to take care of and what they have stored up will be used for God's people, uh, that implies to me that Ammon will have been where God is bringing his people. And we know that to be this area around Zion. So uh, look how far... Uh, Lot's daughters getting him drunk has reverberated out from that instance. So, so did it happen with Noah. So Noah had a problem there. Uh, he he phrased a vineyard. Maybe he liked the fruit of the vine, maybe he liked it too much. But in one instance at least, doesn't say how much he drank or over a period or whether he had a perennial problem with it, but. At least on that one occasion, he got so drunk that something awful occurred. And, and yet, <coughs> Noah lived essentially a life of righteousness. And he's mentioned in Hebrews 11 as one of those who will be in the first resurrection as the bride of Christ. So, that should be encouraging to you and me. That so whatever mistakes we've made in life, whatever has been done, nothing is unforgivable. That is, unless we come to the point that we are not willing to accept God's way and reject it and refuse to repent, then we're getting in an unpardonable condition. That type of attitude is unforgivable because it is uh, cast in concrete, if you will. But any individual sin, even one such as this one that occurred because of a mistake Noah made, Uh, can be forgiven in the blood of Christ. So, we look to these people for their great and wonderful examples, We we also look and see, hey, they made mistakes. And if they were forgiven and are going to be in the kingdom of God, so can I. So, we, we can learn in a lot of ways from the examples of the patriarchs. Patriarchs, not just one way. Uh, is there more of this? I think that's all of that particular uh, passage that we need. Let's uh, let's go to Isaiah 54 for a moment, <coughs> because Noah is used in speaking of you and me. In Isaiah 54, remember Isaiah 40 begins the end-time work after Herbert Armstrong, who was... Uh, patterned after Hezekiah. But here in 53, which we reviewed a little bit yesterday, uh, is an account of the Passover and what Christ had done, and it appears in the sequence here that God will begin to bless his people after Passover. Now, he says he will begin his blessings on the ninth month, twenty-fourth day in Haggai. From that day and upward will he begin to bless. But Joel, uh, too, I think, says that we'll receive the former and latter rains in the first month. So, former and latter rains represent an awful lot of blessing. So, he begins to bless in December. This year, it's December 23rd, if it's it's the year that this begins. Uh, The 24th day of the ninth month is December 23rd. So from there, blessing will begin on uh, whatever year it occurs, but incredible blessings may be reserved until the first month. And here, Passover being in the first month, indicates, uh, and then why is this an inset chapter? It's talking about the church, and suddenly it talks about the Passover exclusively, and then in 54 it picks up about the barren woman, the church, beginning to sing and cry out and how her children will be increased and she has to make more space. It's the, it's the gathering of the 10% remnant under the two witnesses. And apparently, the major part of it begins right after Passover, I would say, based on this context. And he tells them in verse 4, "...not to fear, they won't be ashamed." For your maker is your husband, verse 5, and your redeemer. And he's called you as a woman forsaken, verse 6, and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when you refuse, says the eternal. Well, ancient Israel was refused and divorced. And then God began an engagement process with us in the New Testament. And yet he cast us away, scattered us, spewed us out of his mouth. Now, that's the potential bride of Christ that got spewed. The end time called out once. Because the attitude toward the husband-to-be was not right. But he says, I'm calling you as a woman forsaken. I'm removing the spewing, the separating, the dividing, the, the uh, misery that you've gone through. For a small moment have I forsaken you. But with great mercies will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Eternal, your Redeemer. So, in the overall scheme of things, worldwide lasted about 70 years, which isn't very long considering 6,000 years of man's history to this point. And we have suffered since the death of Herbert Armstrong now about 30 years, which is also a very short period of time. We may have gotten gray and wrinkled in that time, but still 30 years is a very long period of time. So it's just been for a moment. uh, To to God, a day is as a thousand years, so 30 years uh, isn't very long. But notice he says, when he says this and makes this promise, and it's, it's for you and me. It's a promise for this end-time church. For this is as the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with thee, nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from you, Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Eternal that has mercy on you. Remember what he said in Haggai 2? That with the remnant and the two witnesses, he says, In this place will I bring peace. There is not peace in the church right now. There is not peace on this property right now. But when God does these things... He removes the rebels, and he brings about peace. He says, this is a covenant I have made that is as great as the covenant with Noah and the rainbow. How many of you have seen a rainbow? Every one of you. Still there, isn't it? That covenant God made, he has not broken. So when he tells us that he is going to expand us and bless us, and call the remnant out and build his temple in Jerusalem and finish the work that needs to be done, it carries the same weight and power and promise of that covenant with Noah of the rainbow. That's how seriously God takes what he is about to do to his church, the bride of Christ, that has been cast aside for a short period of time. And those who repent and turn to Him with their whole heart, He's going to give this kind of blessings. And He sworn with the same weight as the covenant of Noah that this is going to happen. So is there something in the life of that patriarch that impacts us? You bet there is. God has given us a job to do. He gave him a job to build a boat and to gather the animals and to preserve mankind. Now I ask you, are we under the same uh, conditions as Noah was? If Noah had not done that, all mankind would have been wiped out. Those eight souls would not have been saved. Noah only found grace in the eyes of God. God preserved his wife and his sons and their wives in order to replenish the earth. But had he not finished that job, would have wiped out everyone. Now, he has called out some people here in the end time, and we became lackadaisical and did not obey him in the way that we should. And he has said that he would scatter us And that's now history. That is not prophecy anymore. We have been spewed out. Ancient history. Starting 30 years ago and continuing to this day. But we've been scattered, eh, not as much as we will be, but pretty close to it. I think there's still three oaks and three shepherds that have to fall in one month. And that'll scatter it even more. But what did he say there about... Moses and Elijah. He said these things would be restored and the hearts of the fathers and the children would be turned to the Father in heaven, to the patriarchs, and even physically fathers and sons, parents together. Or he would come and smite the earth with the curse. He would wipe out all humankind. That sounds like Noah's situation. If the end-time church and its leaders do not perform what God has laid out for them to do, mankind will be wiped out. Same deal. To whom much is given, much is required. We have been given much understanding of the end-time and what must be done. We weren't asked to build a boat. We were asked to build a temple. We were asked to build Jerusalem. And the conditions will be such that that will be done. Now, God has to have a people to do it. Now, He called us and gave us this knowledge so that we might come out and be a preparation to establish a place that they could come to in the right area A presence of God's people there. And they will be coming soon. Whether it's between now and next Passover and right after, or whether it's still a year away, I do not at this present completely know, but the conditions look like it could very easily happen beginning this fall and winter and progress into the springtime. So when we look at Noah and his patience, his perseverance, his going to work every day, his getting the job done, God expects that of us. And he tells us there, as we read yesterday in Isaiah 52, well, I'm almost there. Uh, I don't remember the verse. Verse 11, Depart you, depart you, go you out from thence, touch no unclean thing. We have an unclean society and culture around us. He says, depart from it. Get away from it. Don't indulge in it. Go you out of the midst of her. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. When we build a temple, God says in Isaiah 44 and 45, just before this, that he will provide his hidden treasures, the temple vessels, perhaps the Ark of the Covenant, and so on, to prove that he is God and they will be in the hands of his church. And he says, those who bear those vessels must be clean. We can't be of the world and like the world. Now, we've come out here to get out of the middle of this world society and its big cities and its uh, perverted culture, So that's a step in the right direction. But what if, having moved into a wilderness area, we import it over our phones and our TVs and our computers? What if, having left the world and its culture, we bring it back to ourselves in electronic means? Isn't that the same thing? You're still imbibing of the culture of the world, and you're not unclean. You haven't washed it off and put on the clean garments of righteousness. We need to be like Christ, not like the world. The things we look to for entertainment need to be Christ-like, not worldly-like. Can you watch much TV or movies without seeing adultery and murder and violence and mayhem? Can you play computer games without continual killing, murder, destruction, violence? No. No. It was a violent world that God destroyed with Noah. And we are living in an increasingly violent world today. And it has been being promoted with our kids You know, our kids, when they reach three, four, five years of age, have their own smartphones and iPads or whatever those things are. And they can go to those games. And they see and watch violence. It was introduced a long time ago in in the children's comedy hours. Murder, kill, and death. Stomp on them, drop them off cliffs, you know. All the the wonderful comedies we used to watch promoted violence and death. And now, it's far, far worse than it was then. Can you say that you're bearing the vessels of God when you spend hours playing violent games on TV or whatever electronic device you use? Get away from it. Go out from the midst of her. Be you clean. If you're going to bear the vessels of the eternal, it's just as addictive as heroin. It's just as addictive as alcohol or any other thing. Eating too much, those games get in people's minds. They get to the place they can hardly live without them. Oh, <laughs> what do I do? My screen got turned off. I got to fix it. I got to go to the whatever game it is that feeds you violence. Day in and or sexuality, or both. Is it as in the days of Noah? Let's continue with another scripture or two. Uh, I'll go to Ezekiel 14 next. I'm headed for one in the New Testament, but let's go to Ezekiel 14 on our way there. Noah, in spite of the issue that occurred, which created problems for Canaan and his children in the future, uh, let's notice Ezekiel 14 and verse uh, 13. Son of man, when the land sins against me by trespassing grievously. And our society is that today. It's not just on our televisions and our screens now. And it's not just better reporting, but there is more murder and more violence throughout our land than ever there has been before. Then will I stretch out my hand upon it, and will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. He's speaking of our land, the land of Ephraim, right here. We're going to have famine and no food. And Ezekiel 5 says that a third will die of famine and disease. One-third will die by the sword, be killed. Are we a violent nation? Do we teach violence to our children through electronics? And will that come back on our heads and one-third of our people be killed with a literal sword? I mean, it gets graphic. It says the pregnant women will be ripped up with the sword and their children dashed in the streets. That's what's coming on this nation within five years. I think I can safely say within five years. We're degenerating so rapidly, I doubt it'll be that long. So I just pick a number. That's not very long. And it could start happening this fall and spring. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, They should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, says the eternal God. But when God picked out three examples of righteousness, uh, the names that came to his mind were Noah, Daniel, and Job, three of the probably most righteous men who had lived to this point when this was written. Uh, Christ did say of John the Baptist later on that he was, the most righteous who had lived at at that point, I believe is the way he put it. Uh, But up to this point, he used these three examples. He says, our society is going to be so bad, but you can't save anybody but yourself. Not even the most righteous men who've ever lived could save anybody but themselves. Ezekiel 33 shows very clearly that the father won't answer for the son or the son for the father. That's the way God thinks. Each will bear his own guilt. So whatever you do will come down on your head, good or bad. Uh, you can't blame your daddy, and you can't blame your son. It's going to be you, individually. That's the way God is. I think that, that mindset of God goes clear back to Noah and Ham and Canaan. Uh, Even though the sin and the penalty of sin might last till the second, third generation uh, after a sin is perpetrated, and sometimes even further as it did with Canaan, the guilt was pronounced on the one who did the deed. Not not Ham, but on Canaan. So the the principle of Ezekiel 33 was used back in uh, Genesis as well. So... Each man is answerable to himself, not to anyone else. Now let's go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And we'll find Noah again mentioned in the context of the end time. Uh, 24, let's begin... Well, let's see, let's let's pick it up just briefly in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation. So the tribulation lasts three and a half years, and immediately after it comes the day of the Lord. After the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. As he comes right at the end of the tribulation, and the two witnesses are killed, and three days later, they're in the first resurrection, along with everybody in Hebrews 11, and those who are alive and remain, and so on. So the first resurrection, verse 31, He sent His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and gather His elect from every direction. So, uh, into the tribulation, three and a half years, the heavens and earth begin to shake. The, the resurrection occurs. Then come the seven last plagues that will last for about a year on the earth. So then he says, learn a lesson. Uh, considering what is about to occur, learn a lesson. Learn a parable of the fig tree, verse 32. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know summer's coming. We look for the buds on the trees early in the year. Uh, so likewise... When you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Which generation? He was speaking to his disciples here. They're all dead. That generation is gone. So when he said this generation, he couldn't have been speaking of them. Well, what is he speaking of? He's speaking of the generation that will be alive when the tribulation comes and all these signs and wonders begin to appear. So he says, when you see all these things happening, the generation that is there is to take heed, to pay attention, because you know it's near. That's us. We see these things beginning to happen. We know it's near. I mean, over the last few months. Listen to the war drums. They've increased. Russia's ratcheting it up. We are ratcheting it up. Uh, War may break out more violently in Syria any, any day now. And the economies of the world are about to collapse. So we know these things are near. What things? Well, the ones that Zephaniah speaks of. A crash, financial crash in Israel. That's us. And the Assyrian coming to destroy us, which we just read about Ezekiel. This is the generation that will not pass until this is done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knows no man, no not the angels of heaven, but my father only. Uh, We can know the timing when we see the leaves on the trees or begin to bud out. We know it's near. We may not be able to discern the day or the hour. We might even discern the year at some point, but not the day. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So he says, I want you people at the end time to go back and read the story of Noah, which we just did. I think that's uh, timely that we do that right now, because that's what he says here. And then he describes what it was like. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What he's saying here is that They ridiculed Noah. They thought he was crazy. He spent a full hundred years, in their view, building the boat. And they laughed at him. And I'm sure they laughed even more uproariously when they saw these animals all flooding onto the ark. And then Noah go in and shut the door. And didn't it say, as we read it, that seven days later, that ark sat there for seven days and no rain. And I imagine the hooting and hollering going on outside that ark got louder and louder. What are you people doing? There's no rain. You're crazy as a loon. He had a loon in there. Um, so all it did was intensify their partying. And they were just living life. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, is it wrong to eat and drink? No. Is it wrong to marry and give in marriage? No. That part of it wasn't wrong. What he's saying is they were just going on and carrying their lives on as if nothing was happening. Now, we see some horrible things looming and beginning to happen before our very eyes, if we're awake at all, to what's going on in the world. But most Americans to this day... They're just going about their lives. As long as I got my job and my food stamps and my TV, I'm okay. Or I don't have my job, but I have my food stamps. Either way, they're just going on about life. And they don't expect the American way of life to end. But it's upon us. Is it isn't far away. But they'll just go on that way. It'll continue even after America's destroyed. Not with Americans, but with the rest of the world. The two witnesses are going to go out and use God's people who will be in a safe place at peace with all kinds of blessings, as is the Garden of Eden, and point to them and say, You know, there's the ark. (laughs) That's the ark. Those people are being saved out of this. Ah, they're crazy out there. And it will go on so much so that after three and a half years of telling them about it, and using the example of how God's protecting them, when they do finally kill the witnesses in the streets of Jerusalem, they're going to party worldwide. That means their communication systems are going to be working. You've got to have an internet or TV or something for them all to hear the news and the whole world to party and send gifts to one another. So, right up until the first resurrection, they'll party that three days and a half, three and a half days while the witnesses lie there in the streets, their bodies left there. They will have a party. We finally got rid of those people. And now we can get rid of those people at Zion. And then they're going to hear a trumpet blast. And those two witnesses are going to get up and head for, to meet Christ. And so will those people in Zion. And they ain't going to be able to kill them. <laughs> Won't happen. They will then go up and marry the king and come back with him to put down all opposition and warriors that are left. And then real peace will reign throughout the earth, not just in Zion. Brethren, we are to be a microcosm of the millennium. We're to be an example to the world of the way things will be in the millennium, and our conduct should be that of the millennium. If we're going to bear the vessels of the eternal, we have to be clean. We have to do it God's way. If he says, don't touch the ark, you don't steady it. You don't try to save it. You let God do that. You can't save anybody else. Noah, Daniel, Job, but yourself. You can set an example for others, but you can't save anybody else. Let's finish this section up here. Uh, Let's go back to Hebrews 11 and review what Paul said about Noah, now that we've gone through his story. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, he didn't see any rain. He didn't see any water bubbling out of the ground. God just told him what he was going to do, and Noah believed God and acted on it. Now God has told us, in all the prophecies of the Bible, and some we just read in Matthew 24, what he is about to do. He's told us, just like he told Noah. Noah only this time in Scripture, not verbally in person. It's the same thing. He's told us what He's about to do. Now, do we have faith to follow His instructions in order to accomplish what He wants us to do? He wants us to get away from Babylon and its influence. He wants us to prepare ourselves spiritually so we can bear His vessels and then build his temple, both physical and spiritual, and build Jerusalem, both physical and spiritual, and do the last work that man is to do on the earth, including a witness against the world. He's called us to do that, if we're part of that remnant. And I think we have been called here as an advanced force to establish something that they can come to. So God intends you and me to be part of it. He intends that. Now, are we going to move forward in faith and accomplish it? Noah did. He was moved with fear of God. Prepared an ark for the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now, has God called upon the end-time church to condemn the world? Yes, He has. And only a few are going to be saved out of it, just like only a few were saved in Noah's day. The two witnesses are going to give the world a condemnation and be told what's going to happen to them. And your very example is a remnant doing God's work will condemn them. Even as Noah's example of building a boat and then getting on it, condemned them. Only a few are going to be saved. Just enough to finish out the 144,000. Now, more physical people will be saved out of it to, to populate the earth during the millennium. But it's going to be quite a devastation. So, yeah, only eight souls in that day. Well, maybe there'll be a hundred million left. But a hundred million is just a very, very small drop in a bucket compared to seven billion. It's not very many. It takes lots of hundreds of millions to make one billion. All right, let's hit two more, and we'll stop. First Peter 3. Uh, again, Peter uses Noah in an end time prophecy. <clears throat> so, what happened back in that day uh, has a lot to do with the circumstance that we're living in. Christ mentioned it, Paul mentioned it, and here Peter mentions it. Uh, here he's talking about the end times and how God is, has his eyes on the righteous in verse 13 and how we'll suffer for righteousness' sake, and so on, just as Noah did. Uh, Verse 17, It is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So they killed him in the flesh, and then God quickened him in the Spirit, by which, that is, the Spirit of God, by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when, once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So apparently, during that hundred years that he was building the ark, uh, the demons, some of them at least, were restrained. And Christ went to them and talked to them, preached to them, during the time that the ark was preparing. They didn't listen. And then he uses that like figure of the ark uh, in regard to baptism. They, they went under and out of the water <laughs> for over six months. And he likens that to baptism just like he did the Red Sea with Israel. They weren't covered over, but they were down under the water with it rising up on every side of them. The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Uh, We've sinned, and putting away sin doesn't save us. But the forgiveness of our sin and having it washed away in the blood of Christ gives us a good conscience by the resurrection of Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. So he uses Noah's situation as a time when uh, evil was being preached to, whether he preached just to demons or whether he may have preached to evil men, Some have speculated it doesn't really matter, but he was preaching against the evil that was going on. And doesn't the end time preach to the world about the evil that is going on? Yep. Not as long, not a hundred years, but three and a half years. And the end time church is told, don't even go to the world. There in Revelation 11. go to the altar, and then the worship thereon, not the court of the Gentiles. So Herbert Armstrong went to the whole world to call people. And then the very end time work, the one following Herbert Armstrong, the gathering and the building of the temple and Jerusalem, those leaders are told, don't even go to the world. You get the church straightened out. Doesn't it say there in Revelation, I mean in Zechariah 4, that the two witnesses are to preach to the church? The seven lampstands? That's the church. That's their first responsibility, is to get God's people in the right frame of mind and obedience that they're supposed to have. Once that has occurred, and those people have gathered, and have built the temple, and have built Jerusalem, the abomination will be set up in the temple and those people will flee to Zion and that is the day that the witness begins to go to contemn the world. They don't preach to anybody but the church until the temple is defiled and Jerusalem is defiled and that begins the tribulation. That's when God's people will be protected in Zion because they cannot be protected in Jerusalem anymore. The end time Antiochus will have taken over. And you have to flee for your very lives at that point. So, that's what Peter's talking about here is the times we're in. Let's go to Second 2 Peter 2.5 then in closing. Uh, here he shows uh, that there will be false prophets at the beginning of the chapter. And many will follow their evil ways or lawless ways. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Wasn't Noah evil spoken of? Will we not be evil spoken of? And are we not already? And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation slumbers not. For if God spared not the demons that sin, but cast them down to Tartaru, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved to judgment. So he held them in captive, is what he said earlier. Uh, speaking of the demons, not of people, even though some people think that's the case. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth generation, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he uses Noah's situation as an example to us here in the end time. There will be false teachers who will make spiritual and uh, physical financial merchandise of us and teach lawlessness, and they will be condemned just like those demons were in the days of Noah and as men were when the flood overflowed them and drowned them, and only eight were saved. So out of this overly populated earth, a very small percentage will be saved. And that is only most of it physical, uh, saved from death to live on during the millennium and get straightened out then. But it's a much, much smaller number, only 144,000 from all ages who will rise to meet Christ in the air And be the bride of Christ to come right on the earth. So, Noah's example is a very, very powerful one in the Bible with a great meaning for us who populate the earth or populate the church, particularly today. Uh, And one of the patriarchs that we do indeed need to look to for the faith and the obedience and the fear of God that He showed and get the job done that He's given us to do just as Noah did the job he was given to do.